0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, good morning, everyone. and Welcome to IMC. And um, the only announcement I have before beginning the talk is that um, in two weeks, on April 12th, we'll have um, a community meeting here at IMC in person. It will have been just about three years since we closed with the beginning of the pandemic. And it seems like a nice time to mark where we're at and where we're going and kind of the vision of things and the needs, how they changed and anything else. And um, so anyway, so it will happen after the sitting. So I think maybe at 11 o'clock or so. Um Yeah. March twelfth. What did I say? April. April. Sorry. Yes. Thank you very much. So March twelfth in two weeks, and that, um, and then in April, somewhere around April, that may be April twelfth or no end, sometime in April, we'll have an online community meeting like that as well, uh, for the online community, which is quite large. Um, but it feels important also for the people who are local who come here to have a meeting, um, to talk about kind of the in person dimensions of our community and um so please come and um any, anybody's welcome to come uh i think for march we're still following the protocol for covid that we're doing with people have to sign up for sunday morning but will um, um but for the 11 o'clock community meeting i think that's going to be open to anyone so maybe we'll be having more people uh we'll wear masks inside but I think that we're getting into a period of time now. I think that we're also seriously considering uh, how to change our kind of COVID protocol. Is it time to change it and how to change it? And and maybe, um, I was thinking in the beginning of April, we'll probably do some kind of change. And exactly what that change will be, I don't know. Um, I just came back from teaching in New Zealand and I was asked and, uh, and both to teach a retreat there, but also to teach for an evening sitting group. And it was kind of fascinating to go from here to there, where just about no one was wearing masks. And to sit in a big room like this, you know, with no one, almost no one. There were two people there, game, wearing masks. It was quite different. And so I don't know if that marks anything for us in terms of our changes, but I think that... Um, It's certainly time to discuss it and consider what, you know, step by step, what we're going to do that's going to be different. And I thank you for all of you for wearing your masks here. Some of you probably don't see the need for it, and I know that things have changed quite a bit, but I appreciate very much that we're still doing it, and I think it does make a difference. So... um, For this talk, I would like to begin with a story that's uh, attributed to the Cherokee people. And it's a story that uh, circulated quite a bit uh, right after 9-11. 9-11, you know, September eleventh, two 2001 was a big deal. And the impact the, on this country and on the world was quite huge, and the emotions were quite strong. And so this story circulated and had to do with a Cherokee grandfather talking to his grandson and he says um, there are two wolves battling inside of us all. One wolf uh, is angry and greedy and wants to destroy and has envy and conceit and all these kinds of powerful negative forces that we can have inside of ourselves. And the other wolf has love care and generosity and nurturing and all these positive forces that we can have. So the grandson sits there quietly for a couple of minutes taking this in and then says to the grandfather, which one will win the battle? And the, grand- and the grandfather says, whichever one we feed. So that's the kind of strong message of the of story. Whichever one we feed that if we don't pay attention to what we're feeding, that uh, who knows what we're feeding. We might be inadvertently feeding the wrong wolf inside of us. We might be doing things that support anger, support greed, support conceit, uh, rather than supporting being nurturing and loving and generous and all these other kind of ways of being. And um, so what's fascinating a little bit in comparison to buddhism the story that buddhism kind of says the same thing but um, but in the story there are two kind of equal forces two wolves that are there and in buddhism a similar kind of process is in play within us I maybe not called it a battle but certainly a balancing act and of what has what gets prominence for us but they're considered to be two radically different systems so then it wouldn't be like two wolves. I don't know what it would be um the The Buddha sometimes uh, gives his lion's roar, so I don't know if the difference between a lion and a hyena <laughs> within us, or I was trying to think of something a little bit nicer than that because lions are a little bit you know carnivorous <laughs> um, so what is there so I was thinking about maybe a whale <laughs> I love whales, the biggest mammals you know that are you know. And, uh, and a hyena. So these two, two different kind of animals within us. And uh, we usually don't give prominence to our, our whale, you know, to this whatever that is. And um, so Buddhism also has these two different forces. And what's fascinating to me is that uh, the, hab, uh, the characterizations of these two different processes inside of us that the Buddha gives... And uh, because uh, it kind of speaks to how they're very different from each other. That um, one of them the Buddha described as being artificial. Being, he uses the word constructed, um, but it's clearly constructed um, by the mind in a way that's artificial, meaning it's not part of the natural world, the natural system of things. And we have the same kind of division in po- popular English, Between, um, we talk about, you know, uh, something that's been made artificially, like artificial sugar, uh, versus what's, you know, natural product are. Synthetic plastics, synthetic clothes, versus, you know, something that's naturally made, cotton clothes, for example. And this distinction between things that don't exist in nature on their own, but have, but which are products of the human mind that have created and invented and made something. And uh, you could argue that's natural as well, but there's still a distinction between what is um, um, kind of uh, human-made and has a source that is independent of what can be found on its own in the natural world. And so the Buddha kind of plays up that distinction. And he uh, he uses the word sankara, which uh, means constructed, but the the idea of being constructed is that it's constructed in a way that's unnatural. It's part of a man, a human made kind of kind of uh, invention construct that is put together. And uh, in the ancient world, the, w- the word sankara uh, could mean uh, cooking soup, cooking a meal, constructing it, preparing it. Um, it could also mean, uh, and I think this is one of the plays that the Buddha had word plays he had it could refer to the construction of a a Brahmanical ritual. Some of the rituals were actually called Sankaras. Um, um, But a a way of making them was constructing them, which that, you know, in contrasting themselves to to the Brahmins, the Buddha was focusing not on what can be constructed by humans, but a very different process. So not these rituals that are made and built. He didn't put emphasis on that, but on something else different the the image that's used in Tibetan tankas, Tibetan paintings, of Buddhist paintings, of this Sankara is a potter making a pot. And it always seemed like a very nice uh, image, but here we have a, something that's humanly made, something fragile, that's the image of Sankara. and So this uh, humanly made is the important uh, distinction being here. In the Sutta's teachings of the Buddha one of the images that's used for becoming fully awakened is um, um, uh, broken pottery shards resting at the bottom of a very clear lake. The, the, the clear lake represents the enlightened mind, enlightened awareness, and somehow with a light, enlightenment, the human constructed categories, beliefs, conceits um, that we can live by have been shattered, and uh, and they lay there peacefully on the the pottery shards lay there on the on the bottom of the lake. Some of you know a very famous um, uh, verse attributed to the Buddha, where he says that at the point of his enlightenment, saying, "Housebuilder, you have been seen. Your rafters uh, have been shattered, have been destroyed, and I have attained." The, the destruction. And, um, and the word for destruction is, uh, has, again, has the word sankara in it. It's the destruction of the sankaras, the, con- destru- the de- destruction of what's been constructed. And um, so it's not pointing to something which is unnatural in us, it's pointing to something which is an artifice, that's a creation, that's unnecessary. And some of you might go along with that, that uh, conceit, for example, that other people have, uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, kind of has an artificiality to it. It's something constructed and made up, and, you know, it's, it's like a little bit oppressive, and it's problematic. Uh, you could, you know, certainly make the argument that that's natural to it. Where else does it come from? But, you know, where does anything come from but the whole natural world? Everything's natural, Right. But the distinction is, is between what is an artifice just made by humans versus what comes from the natural world. So what is it that's part of the natural world? That's this other system that the Buddha is talking about. And um, and for that he uses very natural metaphors to bring it forth or to kind of describe it. <clears throat> and one fascinating one is, um, <clears throat> is uh, he has a little metaphor that's a uh, description of a hen that has a whole bunch of eggs that she's sitting on, incubating. And if she uh, keeps them warm, sits on them, incubates them along, then those healthy eggs will certainly hatch. They'll take and pick, up, pick their way out of the shell soon enough. And the Buddha says, even if the hen does not want them to hatch, they will hatch. And so this idea that there's a natural process that doesn't require even the hen's desire or mental, you know, wishes or constructs, it's just happening on its own. And he said, in the same way, people who practice well in the Dharma, they don't have to even want to be enlightened. (laughs) They will be. And he says they will break through the shell or whatever that might be that uh, keeps us in. So that's kind of a remarkable teaching about this practice that it's a natural process like you're incubating something. So, um, and uh, and the Buddha says the same thing in uh, in a number of places. And one of the places he says that um, uh, if you really have... uh, endowed with or in, living in harmony with or living out of the Eightfold Path, you know, fully, then even if you don't want to be enlightened, you will become. It's a powerful message about there's something inside of us, a natural process that's set in motion by certain conditions, certain incubate, incubating support that's here is It's not something we have to huff and puff to get enlightenment but it's something we nurture, we nourish. It's a part of our nature that we nourish, nurturing our nature to allow something to grow and develop, to unfold. And so Buddha uses a lot of words from the natural natural world to describe this process of Buddhist practice. He talks about it being a process of growth, a a process of uh, development, and the, the word that's used, uh, bhavana, sometimes uh, is translated as cultivating and developing. And I think of it like cultivating a plant. You don't engineer the plant. You don't tug on it so it grows faster. You nourish it, nurture it, protect it, so the natural process of the plant can grow. And so the natural process that leads to awakening uh, is so the language is it's called, it, brings, it goes to fruition. The, someone who's enlightened has attained the fruit. But in order to have a fruit grow, the tree has to be protected and supported and allowed to grow. So there was that egg analogy, which I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, but one of the most common uh, reference points the Buddha uses for the kind of care, kind of attention, the kind of uh, inner life that we need to have to bring about awakening, full awakening, uh, he uses them as a metaphor a word in Pali Sanskrit which is yoni. And exactly what yoni means is not, you know, it's a little bit variable, it depends on how it's... But uh, in the most literal meaning for humans, it means the womb. It could also mean uh, the, uh, uh, the fundamental source for something, the Pali English Dictionary gives matrix as one of the meanings of it. And matrix uh, comes from the Latin word mother. And uh, it matrix is a place where, a uh, matrix of things that allows things to develop and grow. So, but this idea of a womb, I think, is one of the most primary representations of what is a natural process that we're part of as human beings. What could be more natural then producing children, and growing children, and developing, having them develop within. Um, certainly a person might want to have children, and desire children, and tend to have them, but at some point, you have to, you know, once you're pregnant, you um, let this natural process unfold, and you have to kind of support it, and nourish and protect it, that natural process, the best you can. Uh, I mean, eventually, I guess we'll start doing genetic engineering, but I don't know if we're quite there yet for the embryo, are we? Started, started to do it? Anyway, the, traditionally, you know, it's a completely natural process that is not part of the, you know, human artifice and, and engineering that we do. And uh, so it's representative of this natural process. And, um, and so the word, the, the phrase that's very important in the Buddhist teachings is yoni so manisikara. And I translate it manisikara means the doing the activities of the of the intellect of the mental activities, so that somehow our inner mental life our inner spiritual life is something that yoniso means comes from the womb comes from a deep source within Sankaras, these uh, mental formations and constructs that the Buddha wants to shatter and be an end with are products of clinging in the mind and the mind becomes free of the clinging when the constructs are shattered. That doesn't mean that we stop thinking and working and having concepts we live by, but we're no longer living by the artifice, the constructs, the artificiality that the mind can create. And instead, the source for where our life comes from is not the clinging of the mind, but rather the, uh, the 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 supportive flow of, of inner qualities that come from this deep source within. <clears throat> so this is why I wanted to say that this, this the analogy of the two wolves doesn't quite work for Buddhism, because wolves are two equal things, as opposed to um, you know the attachments of the mind versus the the natural growth that can come from a womb-like source within and so uh i sometimes i've tried calling this the, the gestational forces within us the gestational energies or impulses because the idea that we're gestating something we're incubating something in practice and we're allowing something to unfold and to grow and to move through us as opposed to being the engineer for our practice not a few people have entered practice with full of conceit. I'm going to be the first one on my block to be enlightened. You know, I'm just going to go to this. Re- I'm going to go to this retreat. I'm going to huff and puff. I'm capable. I'm smart. I'm energetic. I've been successful in whatever that I do in my life. You have a PhD from Stanford, and I can certainly do this. <clears throat> and boom, you know, there they go. You know, and and uh, generally, it's understood if you have that kind of attitude, it'll take you about ten times longer to get enlightened. <laughs> Uh, partly because you're not allowing for this natural incubation to happen, making room and space for this natural growth that needs to occur. And what we do as practitioners, and we can do a lot, it can take a lot of effort to practice, but we understand what we're doing is develop is providing the conditions, the nurturing supportive conditions for this natural process to unfold. We're nurturing nature. And... Um, <clears throat> so um, um, so how do we do this? And there's many ways of doing it, but I want to offer you the middle way. Uh, Buddhism is famous for the calling the middle way and uh, and one technique, uh, for the time being I'll call it that it doesn't have to be considered that is um, the practice of doing nothing and uh, but doing nothing while either literally or metaphorically sitting in meditation in an upright, still posture. It, it can be other postures. It can be done lying down this way. <clears throat> but it's a clear posture of dig- dignity, of nobility, of uprightness, of balance. And we sit there uh, in a good posture. And in Zen practice, they put a lot of care into sitting in this really good, upright posture that actually takes a lot of sometimes physical effort to kind of keep the posture going and stay, stay alert. But you stay there, and, you, and then the practice is to have this middle way pract, uh, posture and don't move. And on the surface of it, at initially, uh, all the impatience, all the reactivity that's expressed through the body moving is not expressed. And uh, so you have an itch. You're not supposed to scratch yourself. I mean, you're allowed if you want to. It's not like no, no one's preventing you in our tradition. In Zen, you're kind of prevented. But you don't give in to the, the reactive impulses. Uh, you feel impatient, and you want to look at your phone. Like, you know, I must have gotten, it been five minutes, I must have gotten a new text message. <laughs> And so, you know, what can be wrong with checking my text, right? But the, what's wrong about it is what, what, what we're doing now in checking the text, more likely, is reinforcing the reactivity of the mind. And the, the constructs of the mind, these this, this sankaras, uh, are, belong to the world of reactivity. The world of reactivity belongs to this world of attachments and clinging that belong to this place in the mind, this place that is artificial or superficial, doesn't really come from the depths. So we sit there and we don't give in to the impulse to check the phone. We don't give in to, sometimes in meditation, even if our body feels uncomfortable, we, we don't give in to changing and reacting and moving, but learn to stay still in the discomfort when we sit. Um, so a number of things happen then this way. Physically, if we don't move and sit still, some of the layers of tension we carry in our body, which are born, which arise from the reactivity of in the mind, this world of sankaras, this world of constructs, is what contributes to physical tension in our body. So as we're sitting and not moving, some of the, for some of us, some of the daily tension that's built up begins to relax. And you know, it's one of the first for some people is the shoulder. I mean, it's still to this day. Sometimes when I sit down to meditate, my shoulders give it, give give it, Oh yeah, you know, I give give away a little bit and settle. To this day, still when I sit down, my stomach will relax a little bit just sitting there, uh, just the ordinary tension of daily life kind of have a chance to settle. As I keep sitting in meditation, my breathing begins to change. Because I'm busy running around doing things before I come to sit. (laughs) And it affects my breathing. And and so then my breathing begins to relax. And this relaxing is beginning to uh, uh, settle the reactive, constructing kind of uh, uh, force in the mind. This artifice, this construct, this humanly created things that go on. All the tension that you carry in your body, don't blame the world for it. Don't blame others for it. Don't blame your, don't blame your boss. Don't, all the tension you have is a product of your own mind. Somehow the processing of your own mind uh, processes of the world. The conditions for your tension might definitely be out there. And sometimes it's, it's appropriate to address those conditions out there. But, uh, but in Buddhism, the primary kind of understanding of how tension occur, builds up inside of us is goes through this constructive, reactive qualities of the mind that are based on clinging of something something or other. And so we sit in this middle way and sit still, and, and <clears throat> we start seeing our reactivity. We don't give in to it. And within some, with some, some degree, maybe there's some relaxing that goes on, settling. As we do this, we also start seeing sooner or later that we have a reactive mind, and uh, so we're sitting there, sitting there, sitting quietly, minding our own business, and we're starting feeling impatient. The meditation is not over, and so the logical thing to do is to be angry at the bell ringer. You know, you know, we, it's num- we can't. It can't be this long. And um, and so I'll look at my watch. No, I'm supposed not supposed to look at my watch. Don't give in to the reactivity. I'll keep I'll just look and see. I'll stare at the bell ringer. <laughs> no, no, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to stay still. That's the middle way. Just still with the eyes closed. Stay still. And um, and so then we see that the mind what the mind is doing more. Oh, I'm starting to write letters to the president of IMC. <laughs> that these that, this, that the sittings are too long. And if this Buddhism is really up to snuff, like, you know, the the Calm app, uh, 10 minutes should be enough. <laughs> and this, you know, 35 minutes for Sunday morning is just, I have to, t- you know, this is like old-fashioned. <laughs> you know, if we have our meditation technology is really up to snuff, you know, 10 minutes should be plenty. And you guys, get, you know, old-fashioned and not really up-to-date with... So you start seeing the mind writing letters and rea- you know, it's like reacting and... And then you're reciting the letters, you know, you know, with an exclamation point, thanks or good luck or something. <clears throat> and you start seeing that the ang- the mind is angry, the mind is upset, the mind it gets goes carried away in these trains of thoughts, and it does. That's not the middle way. The middle way is to stay still in the mind. There's, and then you, next time it happens, you start writing these letters. You know, I don't have to do that. Let's not get involved in that. that Let's not get into that activation of the mind. And lo and behold, over time, you start seeing more and more how the mind gets caught in thoughts and reactivity and emotions. And you learn the difference between being involved in those and staying on the middle path, staying in that middle way. So it's not just the body that stays still, it's also the mind begins to stay still. But it's not a frozen stillness. It's the stillness of a hen sitting on her eggs. It's the nurturing stillness that allows for something that needs supportive conditions to come forth, to grow. Something inside of us wants to be born. The Dharma that's in you wants to be born. The path to liberation wants to be born. The what wants to be born is these beautiful qualities that arise out of non-clinging, and the primary. This, there's lots of things like this, but in the in Buddhism, there's uh, seven qualities that it most emphasizes that are supported by this yoni so mani sikara, this um, inner life that arises out of. Deep, profound source within us, and these are the seven factors of awakening. And what's interesting about these is that in this form, as the only as coming out of the out of the womb, what's going to be born, they are not practices we do, but qualities that flower inside of us that come to fruition. So they are, so first is mindfulness, and in popular society these days, mindfulness is a technique. In Buddhism, mindfulness is not a technique, but is more like a state that uh, we become endowed with, that grows and develops. There is the capacity to see clearly, usually called investigation. There's no investigating going on. It's a natural capacity to start seeing what's happening clearly. When the mind, the reactive mind has gotten still. There is uh, engagement natural kind of you can it's beautiful to feel that in the stillness of this middle way of sitting upright and being present there's a, a, a certain vitality animation in being really embodied in here this is not a passive thing but the embodiment the animation is from an inner source that keeps us kind of engaged That's doesn't it's not the mind applying effort but rather we're receiving the next animated animation from inside that's flowing. And it's not automatic, but it's beautiful to feel in meditation the flow of being alive, the flow of being uh, being energized. The flow that's being energized that's intelligent. And the intelligence of this effort uh, that the, uh, the Buddhism emph- emphasizes is the intelligence that flows into what is wholesome, that's healthy, that's nourishing and stays away from what's unhealthy, unwholesome, reactive. And then uh, the fourth of these seven factors of awakening is joy. Joy is not a technique. Joy is a byproduct of this, what wants to be born, coming out of this, it's part of the gestational forces that we have inside. Tranquility, a deep abiding feeling of oceanic tranquility that can come. And then the, the sixth one, which is where there's a lot of reactivity, a lot of constructing and make, trying to make happen around this, is samadhi and concentration. But here again, at, samadhi is not something we construct and make happen, but we create the nurturing conditions that allows for this deep stability, deep unification of mind to come together. It's not something we have to do, but something we allow for. And the the seventh of these factors is a deep, profound sense of equanimity that is sweet and feels sweet and freeing and feels like a phenomenal gift. Equanimity being a mind which is non-reactive. The reactivity of the mind has stopped. But our life force is fully alive and flowing. So that's why it feels so good to have this... Flowing, flowingness, and aliveness and presence, without the 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 static of reactivity in the mind. So, in Buddhism, then in the teachings of the Buddha, there are these two different systems processes within us. One which is um, um, synthetic, Greek word for constructed, put together and the other which is natural, which is, uh, just, if you allow me to try this out, gestational. And the, what we're trying to do in Buddhist practice is support the gestational processes, the natural processes that ex- exist inside of us. And so we see a phenomenal celebration, I call it, as phenomenal appreciation or valuing of a natural process that we all that exists in all of us, that often gets submerged or cut out or rejected, in when we're too much in the mind or too much in our constructs and our be, beliefs in our reactivity. But to but to but be able to calm down the reactivity enough to start feeling the flow, the warmth, the the the. The, the, the generosity of, that can flow from inside, from inside out, that the Buddha a little bit likens to, in a, different, in a certain analogy, to an underwater spring that flows, a spring of water, where water flows up inside the spring and flows out and spreads out in a nourishing way throughout the spring, throughout the lake. So in the same way, there's this nourishing flow that can happen. The path to that, for people who have never practiced, generally, is to somehow live in that middle way, follow the middle path of being still enough that we're not giving in to our reactive forces. So they have a chance to relax. We have a chance to see them clearly. And in seeing them clearly, especially the ones of the mind, of not feeding them not nourishing them. Because whether we're nourishing the wrong thing, our capacity to nourish, to support, to feed, to, um, uh, is one of the primary wealths that we have. The richness of human life is our human capacity that our attention what we bring attention to and how we bring attention is you know is where the where we have an opportunity to give birth to what is most healthy so what is it in you that wants to be born not what in you that you want to acquire not in you what you want to accomplish in the world. But what is it that deep inside, in the deepest place you have, what wants to be born? How would you know that? How would you discover that? And one of the ways is to become quiet and still enough, just a stilling of the reactive mind. And when there's enough stilling and attention Think you start? You'll start feeling or sensing that yes, in fact, something wants to be born. And and then to nourish that, to support it, to make room for it, which you can't do, you cannot do, if you're too busy. If you're running around trying to accomplish all the things it's possible to accomplish in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah you probably won't have room in a time that is needed for this deeper wellspring to come forth. And for, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition, part of that deeper wellspring of what wants to come forth is liberation, is freedom from these reactivities, freedom from construct, freedom from attachment. It's a biological force, biological imperative almost, that exists within us. Liberation wants to be born. So, um, two forces within us. Which will you feed? Whichever one you feed will win, but I think the world loses if uh, reactivity wins. Maybe you'll become a billionaire with your reactive mind that the world will lose because the world benefits from people who, when the best inner qualities of who we are have a chance to flower and develop and grow and, uh, and then we become a gift for the world who we are and which is one of the greatest things to do in human life so in this way also with this kind of way of understanding these early Buddhist teachings um, this naturalistic quality of it um it's uh, it's kind of uh it's uh, i wouldn't call it world affirming but it's uh, it's nature affirming it's affirming something very powerful and meaningful in our life that uh sometimes we don't understand or uh, uh, in buddhism if we uh if teachers like me talk too much about letting go just let go let go let go but now if teachers like me talk too much about letting go just we interpret it as being let go so this natural process can can flower in you so thank you and we have about five six minutes if any of you would like to uh, have questions or comments or clarification you're welcome to do it Uh thank you. It's uh, it's just very enlightening. Uh, probably not a good word to use here, but uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, a practical question I have: you mentioned uh, resisting to look at the phone or the watch. Watch, actually, specifically. Uh, I think quite fast. Say it again. Uh, resisting uh, desire to look at the watch or the. Oh phone, yes, yes, right? yes, yes. So, is it better to not bring a device, whether it's watch or phone? Again at all or is it better to resist the desire (laughs) well there is um kind of a without any other context for the question the generic answer is um don't bring the watch and that's you know that's kind of a standard kind of thing but uh i prefer the contextual answer and that is, what would be most interesting for you? What would be useful for you? Uh, if you're so compulsive that, uh, that you, it, you can't even meditate because you're always looking at your watch, maybe leave it behind for a while until you've settled down enough that you can keep it on that it's not an issue. Or, uh, or maybe it's an issue, but it's not that terrible, but it's still an issue. And you think, you know, I need to deal with my reactivity. So this is an opportunity. I'm going to definitely wear my watch, but I'm not going to look at it. And even if I have to break out in a sweat, (laughs) you know, and just like hold on to my knees, you know, or cross my arms so I don't look or something, I'm going to not look at it because I want to deal with it. I want to get to the bottom of it. So I prefer my second answer because you know whatever is useful for you whatever helps you find your way is that okay you.
1: um i am very curious about the middle path and one of the ways that i come to understand something more deeply is to understand what's around it Um, Can you describe, because where there's a middle path, there's usually a high and a low also, or a left and a right. Can you describe the other two? Because I think that will help me understand how to maintain the middle path.
0: Right. good. That's a very good question. Um, uh, The the language of the middle path, the middle way, is used in so many different ways for so many different contrasts, you know, sides of it, what it might be. Today, I think I was using it with the idea... Um, the difference between um, being reactive and doing absolutely nothing, kind of giving up, collapsing into the situation. And so, because some people just give up and just like hopeless and just kind of like, you know, just spend the day in bed or something. Uh, It's fascinating, this idea of of, um, a middle way of kind of not doing, in conventional ways, not doing anything, but in an unconventional way, you're really staying alert and present and still. So it means that we're not actively going out to do something, but we're also not collapsing. Uh, for it's, it's fascinating, to uh, very helpful to do, for example, if there's a lot of sadness or grief. Uh, we don't want to block or resist sadness and grief, but we also don't want to collapse in it. And so, uh, and so to be able to sit upright this way and just let the tears flow... Without going, oh no, poor me, you know. Just don't. Oh, you might feel that way, but you're going to keep. You're not going to resist it or block it or judge the sadness. Okay, you're allowed to be sad here. Let it flow, but let me just kind of stay this way. And the advantage of that is that is that then this deeper natural process that can support or process our sadness has a chance. Um, If we collapse to it. Then we're actually reinforcing the reactivity around it, that is often a big can be a big component part of some people's sadness and grief that we don't see. Um, So that's the kind of the contrast I was setting up. In the most classic uh, idea in Buddhism, the middle way is the the middle way between uh, the um, uh, sensual desires, pursuing all kinds of sensual desires, and sensual denial, asceticism. So somehow the middle way between that. Another middle way that Buddhism uh, posits is the middle way between the idea that anything really exists or the idea that any, nothing really exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a little bit more philosophical, but mm-hmm. that's that's also profound.
1: Thank you. That actually helped me a lot, getting it for just this context. So what? explaining as you did for just this example today. Yeah, Yeah, great. Seeing the two sides, that helps me a lot.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for asking the question. So maybe one more, and then...
1: Um, At what point is it reacting to your emotions versus um, self-soothing as an act of self-compassion? Ah.
0: Well, you know, this is where... Uh, you know, giving these kinds of talks lends itself to a certain kind of reductionism. It's a little bit too much at times. I can't really explain everything, so I like I appreciate your question a lot. Sometimes reactivity is uh, is wise. Sometimes reactivity we react in a way to care for our worst reactivity. So maybe uh, uh, you know our anger is so strong and we feel so much challenged by it and we want it to go away and, and we, so we want to get, make it go away in a reactive way but uh, we don't reject it we bring a soothing compassion to it and that compassion maybe is close to being this gestational force within us but we're initiating it in a reactive way because we really don't want to be angry but it's successful. Maybe the anger calms down enough that way. So we're using a, a wiser reactivity to address a reactivity which is worse. So we don't want to be too black and white or too you know, absolute between these two different worlds, that one is all bad and one is all good or something. Uh, so sometimes reactivity can support us from settling you know, stronger reactivity. But when, when, but when is but when is bringing compassion to the anger not a reactivity, but a source of wisdom? I think that's also a good question. It doesn't have to, doesn't have, to have any reactivity to it. It has just like some deeper knowing inside knows to bring this compassion and hold it kindly and supportively, uh, nurturingly, like a mother would hold an angry little child. Um, you know, just love and care. It's part of the nurturing and loving Um, uh, and and how to know the difference between this Um, I think that uh, over time you start being able to identifying the difference and one of the differences is that a reactivity always has some quality of tension with it whereas the nurturing qualities have no tension with it but to be able to identify that in subtle ways it takes a lot of practice and sensitivity what do you think of my answer? (laughs) because I like your question.
1: Um, What I heard when you said that is that there's a difference between reaction and responding to something. Uh When we choose the reaction or we allow the reaction, we might be responding to it. Um, I've learned sometimes to just let go of that reaction and allowing myself to despair and making room for it, it makes it, last for a lot shorter period yeah. of time and yeah. I can see it and I can almost get tired of it or laugh at myself for it and then it disappears but the more I fight it it's, uh, it does not work very nice so, very, very dramatic person very nice. I am so yeah. I need that But
0: yeah. great, lovely so uh, thank you all so uh, it's kind of wonderful I think that people are coming together in such a you know, community I wonder if you'd be willing to just give give a couple of minutes more to say hello to someone near you, and even if it's your first time here, you can welcome them. And if you want to say a couple of words about what we talked this Dharma talk and the impact it had on you, you're welcome to do that too. And um, thank you for being here.